And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lots fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry lands. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them the word of the Lord. Morning, and Hope. It's good to be with you this morning as we continue our series in the book of, of Jonah. And before we, we turn to this text, let us turn to the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for what it teaches us. And we thank you, Lord, for the way that your word proclaims Christ to us. I do pray, Lord, that the words that follow would be faithful to your intentions, to this text, Lord, and that you would apply the beautiful truths of this text to our heads, to our hands, to our hearts, as your people, the people of God. And we ask this, Lord, and we thank you for this. In the name of Christ, and in the power and the efficacy of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, today I, I, I want to look at this passage, and I want to do so under, under two basic headings. Two basic headings. We're going to see the false gods, and we're going to see the true God. The false gods and the true God. And so, so with that in mind, let, let's look at the passage, and let's take each of those things in, in turn, starting with the false gods. So what we see is, is the, t- the sailors, right? They're trying to figure out what's going on with the, the storm. And so we see the sailors, they ask Jonah a number of questions quickly in a row. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And notice here that the focus is on Jonah's national identity. Right? Where are you from? What is your country? Of what people do you come from? We have to remember here that the sailors, they are pagans. And even though it might not seem like it, when they're asking about Jonah's national identity, they're actually asking about Jonah's God. Just like the Assyrians whom Jonah is fleeing, the sailors associate particular gods with particular places and particular peoples. And if you remember, the head Assyrian god we talked about this earlier was the god Asser. And to know that someone was from Assyria was to know that that person worshipped him as their head god. As for the sailors, there's a good chance that they are Phoenicians. And and this was a people that was very well known for their seafaring skills. And if they were Phoenicians, they would have worshipped a god named Baal Shemam. That was their highest god, and ironically, ironically, the wrath of this god, the god that they believed in, played out in great windstorms that caused shipwrecks. The irony here, right, is that now there is a great windstorm upon the sea, and this is is threatening to destroy the ship. However, the sailors, they don't attribute what is happening to their God. Somehow they realize that he is not behind what's transpiring. 
Perhaps they, they've offered prayers to him. Perhaps they've, they've given sacrifices to him. And when nothing happened, they've come to realize that their so-called God is actually powerless here. Instead, they come to see that the divine retribution that they are now experiencing, that the, the very thing that their false God is known for, it's because of another God. The sailors have called out to their God and it has not worked. And now they are seeking other gods who can keep them from perishing. They want to see who is responsible for this great storm. Who is the God behind this storm? And who on the ship is responsible for angering him? And so they cast lots. And, and this process is, is not unlike rolling dice. And, and God uses this process to single out Jonah, specifically as the culprit. And this brings us back to the sailors' questions, the questions they ask to Jonah once he is singled out. Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Notice these questions actually begin to break down their religious categories. These questions, they focus on Jonah's national identity, right? Who is the God of your particular place and your particular people? And yet, here's the thing, they are at sea. They're in the very place where their God reigns but they realize that some other greater God who will not stay put in his own country is at work here. Tell us, Jonah, where are you from? So we can know more about this God who refuses to stay in that place. And before we look at Jonah's response, let's think more fully about what's happening with the sailors here. As we talked about last week, Jonah has caused this storm with his sin, his fleeing from God, and now the sailors have to deal with the storm. They have to deal with the effects of Jonah's sin. This is always true of sin. When we sin, it affects the people around us. However, God uses the storm in a good way. The storm brings the sailors to the breaking point with, with respect to their religious sensibilities, right? The, the, the storm breaks down their false categories. And so they begin inquiring about this God who is not limited in the way that their gods are. They're realizing that their own understanding of the divine is wrong. They're searching and they're seeking for truth. And they hope, 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 hope that Jonah has the answers that will keep them from perishing. These are questions of desperation. These are questions that are seeking truth, the, the truth about God. When we encounter storms, the breakdowns caused by sin, and that can be the storms that we cause or the storms caused by those around us, the question is this. Will we, like the sailors, learn from it? Will we inquire of God? Will we come to a better understanding of reality? Because here's the thing. Storms always happen when we act against reality. And this can happen on a big scale or on a personal scale. And consider an instance on a big scale. Jean Chuangi, psychology professor, um, she's from San Diego State University, 
she, she gives us an example of, of this happening on a big scale in her new book, uh, Generations. She points out that a lot of curriculum for kids in the, the 1980s and the 1990s, it actually began supporting and reinforcing personality traits associated with narcissism. During this period, kids heard again and again and again, you are special. And this was actually a phrase that was hard to find in books of earlier decades. Twangy warns that when you think of yourself as special, as compared to everyone else, this is not indicative of a healthy self-confidence. This is actually indicative of narcissism. And, and Twangy goes on to provide sample statements from the narcissistic personality inventory. And, and when you take this, participants, they either have to agree or disagree with statements like this. I like to be the center of attention. I can live my life any way I want to. I like to look at myself in the mirror. If I ruled the world, it would be a better place. And for instance, if you pick this, the, the, the statement, I think I am special, over the statement, I am no better and no worse than most people, that counts as a point in the narcissism inventory. And yet, these are exactly the kinds of catchphrases that were everywhere in the 80s and the 90s and into the 2000s. We had a culture that was training us to be me-centered narcissists. And through these decades, college students scored higher and higher each year on these narcissistic traits. And I say this as someone who went through college at this time and who has certainly imbibed a lot of this. Just ask my wife, right? And this development was and is bad for community and for relationships. Twangy writes this, people who tend to score high on the narcissistic personality inventory, they tend to favor short-term relationships over long-term relationships, react with anger when challenged, and value possessions and status over caring. And then, and then something happened. There was a storm that brought us back to reality. This happened around 2008. Twangy writes this, most remember what happened next. The economy crashed, creating the Great Recession. It was a reality check for everyone, even those still in college. The culture backed off of the outsized grandiosity of the mid-2000s, and although individualism remained, it retreated to more realistic territory. Especially given the roots of the recession in risky mortgages, unsupported optimism didn't seem like such a good idea anymore. She also points out that the hard reality of the recession led to a plateau in the narcissism that permeated the culture. She notes that narcissistic phrases in the media, they didn't go down, but for the first time, they didn't increase either. That's where we are now. The hard realities of the recession, they didn't destroy our cultural penchant for narcissism. We, we all still feel that, but it did at least work to keep it at bay, sort of this far and no further. And the point is this. You can only resist reality so much before it starts to push back. Narcissism pushes against reality. And eventually, narcissism breaks like a boat against the hard rocks of reality. The recession showed us that worshiping ourselves will not work. 
Narcissism, both on a personal and corporate level, had a lot to do with bringing about the recession. You can only resist reality so much before you unleash a storm. And I remember the recession. It definitely hemmed in my post-college self-focused idealism for all the things that I was going to do. Me, me, me. And that hurt. And I and, and, and all of us were still learning. We need to be reminded, all of us, that the good, ordinary, quiet life is what God calls us to. The day-in and day-out work of a humble and dignified job, of friendship and family, of church, of community. God may bring great increase to our work, or he might not. That is his prerogative. Our responsibility is to steward well and steward faithfully whatever God has called us to do. We are to tend, we are to till, we are to water, but it's God alone who brings the growth. And this truth relieves us from the pressures that we were never meant to bear. We're not called to make our lives like the movies. If that's your aim, you will always feel like you are failing and you will not be able to appreciate the very good, wonderful, and ordinary gifts that God fills our lives with. We are called to great joy in this life, but the joyful life is one of consistent, grateful, and humble service. The recession helped us realize a lesson that we as modern Americans wrestle with. We are not special in the sense of being better than everyone else. Yes, we are dearly loved by God, We bear his very image. But friends, we all, all of us bear his image. And we are all corrupted by sin. Even more, God does not need us. None of us, no one is indispensable for God's plans. There are no first-round spiritual draft picks, so to speak. We all, all of us, participate in God's good purposes as pure privilege by his good pleasure. These truths are the roots of deep humility and deep joy, and these are lessons that we are learning, we will be learning throughout the course of our lives. And unlike the narcissism that is bad for community, there is no better basis for community than these truths. The recession was hard, but I'm thankful for it in many ways. It was a kind of storm upon the sea that broke up the ship, at least a little bit, of our cultural narcissism. Jonah's storm made the sailors rethink everything in a good way. And that's not unlike certain effects of the recession. It showed us that worshiping ourselves will not work. It showed us that narcissism is bad for community, for society, for the economy, for financial accountability, for the common good. It showed us that worshiping our careers and finances won't work because these prove to be very, very fragile things. It showed us that life is much more volatile and uncertain than we often think that it is. And so whether we realize it or not, the recession was pushing us to God and to a more accurate view of ourselves. Of course, the Great Recession did this on a national scale, but every day we encounter storms that also do this on a personal scale. For instance, when you reach tenure and you still don't feel that sense of rest and commitment that you were sure that that status would give you, realize that your career is no true God. 
Let the storm teach you this. When an unexpected car repair or medical expense drains the money that you were saving up in order to have an extra level of financial comfort and security, realize that your money is no true God. Let the storm teach you this. When you follow the advice of self-care gurus who tell you to cut off anyone who doesn't energize you and who doesn't enable you to accomplish your ambitions, and then you find yourself heartbroken and alone, realize that you are no true God. Let the storm teach you this. Realize what the sailors did. Anything that cannot uphold you in the storm is no true God. And we too must let the storms of life point us to the great God himself. And this brings us to our second point, the true God. And so let's look at Jonah's answers to the sailors' questions. Jonah responds, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Notice that Jonah here actually falls into the pagan conception of God. Before he speaks of his God, he speaks of his own national identity. I am a Hebrew. And the implication here is that I am a Hebrew, so I serve the Hebrew, the God of the Hebrew people and the God of the Hebrew place. He's treating the one true God like one of the false local gods of the pagans. And yet Jonah cannot help but burst these pagan sensibilities. Jonah shows us that this God is not limited to one place or one people. No, this is the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. This is the God who is the maker of everything. But while Jonah speaks this truth, this truth is not an actual functional reality in his life. He rightly tells the sailors that he worships the God who created the land and the seas And yet Jonah tries to flee from God by way of the sea, right, the very sea that God has made, to a place called Tarshish, another land that God has made. I'm going to flee God by way of the things that God has made. And we can say more here. God's creating of all things also means that he sustains all things every instant, every second that they exist. And without God's continual act of sustaining all things, without God's continual act of sustaining every single atom in the universe, for instance, everything would simply go back to nothing. Sometimes we can think about God's work of creation like like making a watch, right? God makes the watch, God winds the watch, and and, and then God kind of just lets the watch tick on its own. And from there, the watch can do whatever it wants to do on its own. But this is absolutely not the Christian view of creation. If it were, then Jonah might actually have a good chance of running away from God. Instead, here's a better image that I've heard before. God is like a singer and creation is like a song. The song exists each and every second only because the singer keeps singing it. Once the singer stops, the song stops. It ceases to exist. And if God sustains every inch of creation, if he stopped doing that, it would cease to exist. And so Jonah tries to run away from God by way of the very waves that God actively sustains. Even more, Jonah tries to run away from God by way of his own two legs 
that God also actively sustains. It would be like Hamlet trying to run away from Shakespeare. In fact, it would be less impossible for Hamlet to pop right out of Shakespeare's quill and paper and take off down the streets of London than it would be for Jonah to successfully run away from God. And this takes us to an amazing truth about God. God is great. He is infinitely, immeasurably, and incomparably great. Again, God creates everything from nothing, and he's the one that keeps everything from going back to nothing. In theological terms, we say God is transcendent. He is holy other than, holy above, holy beyond, holy greater than creation. And yet, and yet, God calls us to the miraculous task of knowing him, even speaking of him like like Jonah rightly speaks of him here. But what, we might ask, can we know and can we say about the transcendent God? It's an important question. Theologian Herman Bovink, he he joins his voice to the Christian tradition when he writes this of, of knowing and speaking of God. He says, In the fathers and teachers of the church, that statement is often found in reflecting upon God. They could, in the final analysis, say much better what God is not than what he is. And that might sound ridiculous at first, but but think about it, right? Many of the key attributes that we ascribe to God, they're actually negative terms. They tell us what God is not. God is infinite, right? God is not finite. God is immutable. God is not changeable. God is eternal. God is not in time. And all of these terms, right, they're composed by adding a negative prefix to a positive term that describes creation. Creation, for instance, is in time. Creation is temporal. God is not. He is not temporal. And so God is eternal. Each of these terms tell us about God, but they do so actually by telling us what he is not. They tell us ways that God is not like creation. Ways that God is not like Jonah, nor the heavens, nor the land, nor the sea that he creates and sustains. And this should fill us with wonder. God is not a creature. He is infinitely different, infinitely greater than anything that we have ever encountered in this world. God is not a big, powerful human being in the sky. God is not the big man upstairs. He is wholly other, wholly transcendent, wholly beyond our greatest thoughts of him. Let's reckon with that. And maybe when you hear that, you think to yourself, well, that must mean that God is really far from us. God is so great. God is so big. He's so transcendent. That how can that great God actually give any thought to me? And so there's a dangerous tendency we have to want to limit and downsize and shrink God. We worry that God's transcendence makes him something like the CEO of the universe who has no time for entry-level workers like us. So our response is we often make God smaller. We make God more relatable. This is what Jonah did, and this is what the pagans do. 
He is the God of this particular place and this particular people. And so what ends up happening is that we make God a bigger version of ourselves and a bigger version of what we want. The brutal Assyrians, right? We talked about this before. The brutal Assyrians who wanted to spread their empire by any means necessary, coincidentally, they found themselves worshiping a god of brutality and military conquest. The Phoenicians, right? A people known for their seafaring, coincidentally, found themselves worshiping a god who controlled the wind upon the seas. And Jonah, who wants to keep the one true God only for the good of his own people and nation, he flees the God who pushes him to other peoples and places. And friends, we do the same thing. Christian Smith and Melinda uh, Melinda Lundquist, they're well known for coining what has come to be the default religion for much of American culture, right? Moralistic, therapeutic deism. And they write this about this very common faith. They say, God is something like a combination divine butler and cosmic therapist. He is always on call, takes care of any problems that arise, professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves, and does not become too personally involved in the process. And and the authors here, they're, they're not undoing the importance of mental health professionals here. What they're doing is showing us that we want a God whose main concern is fixing all of our own personal and professional problems. And of course, as we define them, and and making us feel good about ourselves all the time, and then sort of backing off again until something else goes wrong. As we talked about before, we are being trained to be narcissists. And so we want a God who caters to our narcissism. We want a God who is more than happy to tell us, as per the the, uh, narcissistic personality inventory, you should be the center of attention. You can live your life any way you want to. If you ruled the world, it would be a better place. We expect the God who sustains the farthest flung planets of our universe to be our own personal assistant. And friends, I'm speaking to you as someone who struggles with this very same thing every day. All of us are continually fighting this form of paganism, of making God small, of making God what we want him to be. We are all doing the same thing as the Assyrians, as the Phoenicians, and as Jonah. Like them, and no less coincidentally, the God we worship is perfectly crafted, right? To do exactly what we want and to work on the terms that we have set. And so we kill God's transcendence. If we have a God who already agrees with us on everything, that is not the transcendent God. The reason that our God agrees with us on our use of finances, on our sexual ethic, on our responsibility to others, on what we most need, on what our biggest problems actually are, it's because that God is a God of our own wishful thinking. This God is a false pagan deity, and we have been worshiping this kind of God ever since the fall. And so God does not make us. Instead, we make God. However, if God is transcendent, if he is the God of heaven who made and sustains the land and the sea, 
then how are we supposed to know this holy, great, holy, other, transcendent God? Well, it's because we did not make him, but because he made us. We can know him because he is our creator. To begin with, the fact that God is our creator means that he is not only transcendent, he is also wholly imminent, wholly close to us. It is because God is wholly other than us, because he holds up our every breath and every atom, that God can be so close to us. God's otherness is not a barrier from us. No, it's the very foundation of his closeness to us. God's transcendence is the very foundation by which God comes to commune and know and be with us in an unsurpassed intimacy. Augustine writes this of God, You were more inward than my inmost part and higher than the highest element within me. In fact, if God were more like us, if he was just a bigger version of ourselves, he would actually be farther from us. But it's because he's so different, so unlike us, infinitely greater than us. It's because of these things that he can be closer to us than we are to ourselves. Transcendence is not the enemy of imminence and intimacy. It's the foundation. And so God knows even our smallest care more fully than we do. Shakespeare knew Hamlet better than Hamlet knew himself, and the same is true for us in God. In fact, that God is our creator also means something else. Everything that exists is like God. To be a creature is just to be like the creator. God is being and life itself, and that means that everything besides God that exists exists because it receives its being and life from God. And to receive being from God is just to be like God, to reflect him in some way. The transcendent God who exceeds our finite minds, he's also the creator, the God who is revealed to us in all things. He is the creator, and so all creation points us to him. Herman Bovink writes this, he says, everything, everything bears the stamp of his excellences and the mark of his goodness, wisdom, and power. Friends, to see the world around you is to see things that are like God and things that reflect the glory of God. That's a beautiful doctrine of creation. The land that God made is like God in its stability, in its firmness, in its life-giving harvest, in its majestic mountains, and in a billion other ways. The sea and the water that God made is like God in its power and vitality, in its abundance, in its life-giving drafts, in its cool refreshment. And Jonah and the sailors who God made, they're also like God. In fact, they are more like God than anything else in creation because they bear the very image of God. And so, yes, God is unlike us. He's transcendent. But creation is also like him. He is our creature. Therefore, like Jonah, we can actually speak truly of God. But unlike Jonah, we must take these truths to heart. And the irony here is that not Jonah, but the sailors do just this. In response to Jonah's comments, we read this. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, 
What is it that you have done? The sailors, unlike Jonah, realize the greatness of God, and because of it, they are exceedingly afraid. And they should be. They have, God, they have made God like themselves, right? They're worshiping this false god of the sea. And Jonah, too, has made God like himself, worshiping a false god who cares nothing for the other peoples of the world. And this is the essence of sin, making God into our own image. And really, this is just another way of saying we have made ourselves God. And really, this is just another way of saying that we are all religious narcissists. Ever since Edom, Eden, when humanity sought to determine what is good and what is evil on its own, wholly apart from God, we have all checked the box on the religious narcissist inventory. If I ruled the world, it would be a better place. And of course, who we're ultimately saying that to is God himself. And yet, and yet, while the logic of sin is for humans to make themselves into God, the logic of salvation is for God to make himself into us. Only the great and transcendent God could do that. Only the true God could become human and remain fully God. I recently listened to a talk by, by theologian Robert Barron, and he, he explained this truth beautifully. Barron points out that, that in Christ, the two natures, the divine nature and the human nature, they're united without mingling, without mixing, without confusion. Christ is fully God and Christ is fully human. Neither the human nor the divine is compromised. And this is only possible if God is wholly other than creation. And that might sound abstract, but, but, but consider these examples that Barron gives. He gives examples of creation becoming another kind of creation. The building, right? The building becomes ashes because of the fire. It does not stay both building and ashes, but the building turns into ashes. It's no longer a building. The one becomes the other. They cannot coexist. He also gives the example of a lion eating an antelope, right? The antelope becomes part of the lion. But when it does, it is no longer antelope. It becomes something else. It can't be both at the same time. This is just how creaturely realities work. Building or ash, lion or antelope. But if God becomes human and he stays fully human in Christ, then God must not be a creature. He must not be a creaturely reality. He must not be a thing in this world. We try to be God and fail. This is the core of our sin. We are spiritual narcissists. But God is so great that he becomes human, one of us, and he remains God. This is the core of our salvation. And friends, the greatness of God pushes us even further still. Christ also brings together two other things that only he can. God is so great that he is perfectly just. God will not let a wrong go unpunished. If he did, if he, if he simply swept our spiritual narcissism under the rug, he would be unjust. But God is so great that he is also perfectly merciful. God forgives us 
But if our wrongs are forgiven, then how will our wrongs receive the punishment that that perfect justice demands? And if God punishes us for our sins, then he's not perfectly merciful. And yet, if he forgives us of what our sins deserve, then he is not perfectly just. Just like there can only be building or ashes, lion or antelope, we think that you can either be perfectly merciful or perfectly just. But because God is so great, he can be both fully God and fully human and fully merciful and fully just. How? Because he takes the demands of his perfect justice upon himself. In becoming human, God lives the perfect human life of love and service and justice. God is so great that he becomes human for us. But there's more. God takes the punishment of his own perfect justice upon himself in Christ's humanity. On the cross, Christ takes the very divine justice that the sailors are exceedingly afraid of. And he does so so that he can mercifully forgive us. And so Christ, who is fully God and fully human, is also fully just and merciful. Only the great God could do this. And only the great God would do this. He does this because of his great and perfect love for us. Friends, we're called to receive this love, and we do so by faith. By faith in Christ, we receive Christ. By faith, we are justly forgiven and reconciled to God because of his merciful sacrifice. By faith, by faith, when we look at Christ, we see God himself. He's fully human, and he's fully divine. And so ask yourself, Do you take time to contemplate, to think about, to wonder how our infinitely great God has revealed himself in Christ, the God-human? Learning to love Christ, it, it prepares us for what the Christian tradition has called the beatific vision, our deepest and fullest joy. One day, one day, we will actually look upon God himself, the transcendent God himself. But if we are not looking lovingly upon Christ now, we're not training ourselves for this ultimate joy. Just like good coffee or fine wine, the beatific vision, C.S. Lewis tells us, is an acquired taste. Today is Transfiguration Sunday. And this is exactly what the disciples saw when they looked upon the shining face of Christ. And if we have placed our faith in Christ, we too, one day, In the resurrection and in the life everlasting, we too will look upon the very greatness of the transcendent God. They saw, and we will see, what Dante describes in captivating verse in the final chapter of his Divine Comedy. He writes, For now my vision, as it grew more clear, was penetrating more and more the ray, the ray of that exalted light of truth itself, O grace abounding in allowing me to dare to fix my gaze on the eternal light, so deep my vision was consumed in it. I felt my will and desire impelled by the love that moves the sun and the other stars. This is the great transcendent God that we worship. 
that we will delight in for all of eternity. And we can do that because he's so great as to become human in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the truths that Jonah speaks. And unlike Jonah, we do pray that you would work these truths into our hearts, that they would affect the way that we live. And most of all, that they would point us to what you have done for us in Christ Jesus. When we see the work of Christ, of God becoming human, nowhere else do we see more clearly your greatness, your great justice, your great mercy, and your great love. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.